This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Deist, and I have been looking forward to this show. We're going to do several shows, actually, on Rothbard's famous treatise, An Austrian Perspective on the History of Economic Thought. This is a voluminous two volumes, to put it mildly. Just uh, uh, volume one alone is over 500 pages. And last week, we had our great friend and Mises Institute fellow, Dr. Patrick Newman, who is not only an economic historian, but also a professor of economics at Florida Southern. Uh, join us to sort of whet your appetite for this book and discuss some of the background behind it. But today, Patrick joins us again. Uh, to get into the meat of volume one of this. So all that said, Patrick, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, it's great to be on again. I'm really excited to talk about Rothbard's book. Yes. And of course, this is an actual area of specialization for you on the history of thought. And this morning, I was talking to Joe Becker, who runs our graduate program here at the Institute. He was a, a master's uh, student of Rothbard at UNLV. And we were talking about how, if you look at the table of contents, uh, to these two volumes, it really mirrors somewhat his syllabus at UNLV. So we can see in the early 90s, as Rothbard was teaching this this class on history at UNLV, he was really had developed, I think, in his mind, the genesis of this book. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as someone who has, I've spoken with Joe Becker about this. I've also looked at several of his of Rothbard's syllabi for history of thought, which he taught at UNLV. Uh, he taught up uh, the class right up until his uh, his untimely death in early 1995. Uh, and looking at his the tests, uh, so not only the syllabus, but also the test, it's very clear that he was teaching what he was writing about. So this was a, a higher level elective for students, and he was going through the material that he was writing and he wanted to talk to his students about. So it's quite interesting uh, seeing Rothbard uh, teach the information that he was researching to his students. Well, he spends many hundreds of pages uh, in volume one going through pre-Adam Smith thought. So I think that in and of itself makes this book stand apart from other books of the genre. But also, Patrick, he seems to not be able to help himself. I mean, Rothbard always comes through, sometimes acerbic, sometimes very opinionated uh, and thoroughly Austrian, do you think his personal views and biases color this book uh, too much, or do you think that that's what makes it fun to read and not boring? Well, Rothbard certainly never pulled punches. He, he with all of his, his historical work and even his theoretical work, he's got he's got good guys, he's got bad guys. So in this book, he uh, goes for the jugular for people he he does not uh, he, people whose economic thought as well as political thought, etc that he disagrees with. And he also uh, lavishes praise on those he, he agrees with. So that's something that's uh, been very controversial regarding uh, this two volume work. It's that oh, some people say Rothbard's un unfair with certain people and he's, he's, he's overly praiseworthy of others. Uh, that is something that does affect the book. Uh, but I think that's what makes it unique. And that's uh, you really, you really don't get that in other works because something Rothbard was always, he, he did not want people to, to think that he was sort of unbiased. He was always, I'm coming at from an Austrian perspective, a libertarian perspective, as opposed to the sort of 
quote unquote value free perspective of traditional economists, historians, et cetera, but it's always really just secretly in favor of government intervention and so on. So Rothbard, he always threw all of his cards on the table. You knew where he was coming from. And he also wants to uh, you know, slaughter some sacred cows. And this could be uncomfortable for a lot of people, but that's just that's just Rothbard, take it or leave it. It's interesting. He starts with this fairly quick treatment of the ancient Greeks, and he gets into a lot of philosophy, talks a lot about Aristotle, who was, of course, a huge influence not only on him, but also on Ayn Rand. But we think of Rothbard as coming at natural law or acquiring his view of natural law from Aquinas several centuries later. Uh, but he really gets into Aristotle's political thought here and this this tension between the political philosophy of Aristotle and Christianity itself, which would come later. Uh, but I guess the takeaway here, Patrick, is that the Greeks wanted to use reason to discover natural law. They wanted to use logic. And so that's, that's something that distinguishes them from uh, understanding phenomena as opposed to their predecessors. Right. So the – Rothbard says he starts off, it all began with the Greeks. Something very important in Rothbard's history of thought as well as just his overall worldview is this concept that you discuss called natural law, which basically refers to the fact that there's cause and effect in the world uh, in that there, humans, more importantly, have the ability to understand how the world works or how, understand how the physical world works, understand how the human mind works. Uh, understand human phenomenon, and so on. And so this is a big part of natural law. The Greeks uh, sort of considered economics, or at least what they thought of economics as, as, as a subset of this, and that this is, this is something that really influences a lot of people, especially this Aristotelian perspective that Rothbard references so much, obviously based off of Aristotle. Uh, the basic philosophical outlook of an Aristotelian is that we can sort of uh, derive reason is linked with the empirical world and we can derive reason from empirically known reality. So it's the idea that we can deduce from the self-evident empirical facts. So it's it's reason, but it's broadly empirical, not in the scientific sort of positivist sense, but just in the fact that, okay, we understand humans act. We understand that there's a variety of resources and so on. So this is something that's very influential, not just for later economists, but also the Austrian school more broadly. Well, and of course, this is a big deal, right? I mean, we can imagine that most pre-Christian thought was mystical almost entirely, and people thought uh, their lives were completely determined by gods or something. So this is a big deal. Oh, ab absolutely, especially because uh, Rothbard goes through the, the, the Aristotelian influence on uh, the Catholic Church and uh, Catholic uh, scholars, particularly the scholastics and contrasts it with those of the Protestant Reformation, especially the Calvinists, which thought that, well, you know, man's salvation is God's choice, is sort of anti-natural law. Uh, it's the idea that, you know, that the God decides who will be saved and who won't. Uh, man is sort of inherently sinful. It's a much different perspective uh, on the world that not only influences religious outlook, but even economic outlook. When you say he doesn't pull punches, what do you think of this attack on Plato? He likes Aristotle, Plato not so much. And he even uh, titles a little section called Plato's right-wing collectivist utopia, referring to the Republic. Yeah, that, that's, it's an interesting because I've, I've read the Republic. Uh, and it's, of course, always uh, fascinating uh, when you read Rothbard's perspective on, a, on a, a great work, so to speak, like in terms of a classic, like a true classic uh, that is taught uh, in many across many disciplines. 
I think his perspective on Plato's The Republic is is sort of spot on in that, you know, Plato divides the world between the philosopher kings, the guardians, and I want to say the producers. It really is sort of a communism for elites hmm. uh, in, in, in that sense of the, the, the right-wing collectivist utopia, uh, sort of dismissive of private property and so on. Uh, though I do believe he praises Plato, and this is a very important part, because Plato did base the division of labor on innate inequalities between people. Mm-hmm. So while it wasn't uh, that, that his perspective is that, oh, someone's born a king, then they're going to die a king, or someone's born uh, you know, a blacksmith and, and, and so on. As economists, we wouldn't go that far, but we, we, we would go farther than, than, than other economists. As Austrians, we say that the division of labor is based on the fact that we have different skills and our comparative advantages will come from those innate inequalities uh, amongst people. Well, and you bring up his acute awareness of later divisions between Protestants and Catholics, for example. And this is something, I mean, Rothbard, the revisionist, he always seems to understand religion better than not only most historians, but far better than most economists. So as he, as he segues into this section on the Christian Middle Ages, let's say uh, up into the Renaissance, uh, it's really interesting to me how he's able to weave in Aquinas and Roman Catholicism and, and the Protestant Reformation and really look at this in terms of all kinds of economic phenomena like price and just price and whether being a merchant was sinful. I mean, this is this is actually really interesting stuff to a non-economist like me. This is not a book that is dry or tedious. Uh, yeah, exactly. In it's actually it's funny because a lot of the former economic debates in many ways are just kind of recycled. It might not be the exact same thing, but it's always a variation on theme. So when we hear about just now today, uh, there's not necessarily a discussion of just price uh, from a religious perspective, but we certainly people are taught. Many people argue, oh, that certain prices are unethical or there's price gouging. Mm-hmm. You know, merchants are taking advantage of people. Being a businessman is almost inherently sinful. Greed, greed is bad versus working in the public sector or charity. You know, things like social entrepreneurship is better than just, you know, regular profit and loss entrepreneurship or private sector entrepreneurship, kind of so on and so forth. So it, it's, it's very important in that, you know, Rothbard uh, goes through this and discusses kind of how the earlier Italian scholastics uh, were argued that the, the just price was really the market price. And this was unfortunately later superseded by other scholastics and other uh, economists who thought that, well, the just price could also be what the government uh, says it is. And this also led to later confusions regarding usury. So mm-hmm. is lending money at interest inherently problematic? What function does you know the, does interest play? This was something that uh, the earlier economists really did struggle with, and that impacted uh, later thought. But it's something that we even uh, see today. Because if you ask most people why interest exists, they're going to probably some, say something along the lines of capitalist exploitation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. He brings up this point that there's no biblical foundation for the idea of usury being sinful, and. You know, I've heard some different podcasts. I haven't studied this at length, but I think there's actually more nuance in the Quran as well about the status of usury and, and what, how we even define it. Right. So I believe Rothbard says something, you know, there's, there's no groundwork for usury prohibitions in the natural law or in most texts in the, the Old and the New Testament. Uh, and, but, but it's still 
uh, was something that the church kind of seized on and, and built off of various uh, usury restrictions. And this is this is a big issue because the, the scholastics and the earlier thinkers associated with the Catholic Church, uh, they, they did struggle with this phenomenon and they didn't fully recognize the importance of something uh, what was later known as time preference uh, or even the risk associated with interest uh, and loaning. Some some of them did, but it wasn't wasn't fully uh, systematized. But it, it is fascinating how Rothbard is always trying to show how the correct thought uh, or the incorrect thought, its relationship to various religious texts. So we should talk a little bit about Aquinas. We're in the 1200s. And, and of course, we all know, or I shouldn't say we all, Rothbardians know the tremendous influence of Aquinas on Rothbard's normative work, uh, the ethics of liberty, for example. What is Rothbard's big takeaway from Aquinas in, more in the economic realm? Sure. So Thomas Aquinas, uh, just he was around in the, in the 1200s. Uh, Rothbard really wants to emphasize that he, he did have a lot of the foundational insights regarding uh, economics. There's a lot, of, a lot of good insights. So Aquinas, he made the basic connection between wants and price. So this, this sub, sort of this subjective value or this utility determines price, not labor or the cost of production. And that he was also very big in influencing the scholastics that the just price equals the market price. So the, the, the right price is the price that's mutually agreed upon uh, by buyers and sellers, and that's ultimately determined by uh, utility or, or, or happiness. It's not the equal to just price, it's not equal to cost of production uh, or the government. Aquinas you know, recognized that you know, trade was not sinful. Uh, he wasn't you know, perfect on that, but, but no one is. But he recognized a lot of the, the, the basic sort of the, the foundation regarding the importance of utility, the benefits of trade. Uh, and so on that later influenced scholastics as well as the Austrian school. There seems to be this enduring idea even today, but certainly in the Middle Ages, which Rothbard's discussing here, that that for, for a trade or exchange to take place, there has to be this balancing act on the two sides. There has to be this equality, and that's somehow we find value. And so is Aquinas getting at, in a proto manner here, the idea that you know, we no, we, both sides think they're better off. That's why they engage in the exchange in the first place. Yes, yeah, so I think he is grasping at that. This is something that Rothbard discusses uh, throughout the book. This, this phenomenon: or is exchange something mutually beneficial, or is uh, there a is it a zero sum game? Uh, so I think as John Buridan, uh, about a hundred years after Aquinas, was very uh, influential in arguing that exchange was, was mutually beneficial. Versus someone like uh, the, the, the uh, Montag, I'm not saying, hopefully I think pronounced the name right, was that exchange is sort of a zero-sum game. Uh, and that, yeah, this was, you had this divergent sort of path uh, among, among economists. And, and a lot of it is, is based off of where does the, what determines price? Is it utility? Because if you understand that utility determines price, then you can more clearly see that exchange is mutually beneficial. People aren't going to engage in exchange unless they value what they are receiving more than what they're giving. Yeah. And of course, it's so obvious to us now, but we have the benefit of all these incredible thinkers and we have the benefit of hindsight. I thought it was interesting when he's bringing up Aristotle's example of if someone trades a house, which must have been, we have to think of what a house was in, in terms of that era, for a pair of shoes, then there has to be some proportional 
uh, relationship between how many home builders there are and how many shoemakers. And of course, now we look back on that and we think, well, why would there be any proportion at all? But, uh, you know, not so simple then to, to conceptualize this stuff. Oh, ab- absolutely. And so Aristotle, interestingly enough, I guess he, uh, he, he, he grasped the subjective theory of value, but and then sort of the Austrian law of imputation that uh, you know the the value of the ends determines the value of the means and so on. But he did slip into this exchanges and equality of value. So if two people are trading or something, then that means they are both valued equally, which is Austrians we know is just simply incorrect. Uh, and this is it's it's a tough thing. Of course, in hindsight, we can look back at thinkers and, and see where they they slipped up or where they made made a mistake or something that's that's incorrect. But economic thought does not just come out of nowhere, it takes several years, if not hundreds of years of painstakingly thinking about problems in an abstract sense in order to discover the truth. So in with Rothbard's characteristic revisionism, is Aquinas a bigger historical and philosophical figure than Aristotle or, or not? Um, hmm. I, I, think, I think Aquinas is a well that, that's that's a really good question I, I think aquinas i would say is bigger at least because he's he's talking he's discussing more on about economic concepts and this is also he's directly influencing a lot of scholastics which are certainly closer to uh major economists uh later on than the greeks which there's obviously you know a thousand plus years uh difference so i think in terms of just the basic kind of economic thought. Aquinas is, in many ways, uh, continuing the Aristotelian thought, but I, I would say he, uh, he, he was a bigger person uh, simply because of, of the influence. Well, so Rothbard uh, and, and other famous Austrians like Jesus Huerta de Soto, who is still uh, very much teaching at, in Madrid – you know, they've written quite a lot about the Spanish scholastics. We get into the 1500s, the School of Salamanca, and this is where Rothbard says well, we really got proto-Austrian. So what's the big deal about the Spanish scholastic school and what's, what, what did it mean then? What's its influence today on us? Right. So after the, Itali- the earlier Italian scholastics, uh, which is about in, let's just say, the 1200s, uh, 1300s, in the late 1400s, you really started to see, just from a broader historical perspective, the rise of Spain as a, as a superpower and the relative decline of the Italian city-states. So Spain really became the center of scholastic thought in the 1500s, and this is just, so they're the center of economic thought, which makes sense because they're the leading uh, superpower. In the Spanish scholastics, the School of Salamanca, as you've mentioned, uh, were were very influential uh, in in influencing other Austrians. One, they continue to recognize that subjective value is the you know the utility is the determinant of price. They had grasped at the fact that it was marginal utility. They couldn't necessarily articulate it in um, in, in, in in as correct of a fashion as as we would like. So there was still this vexing problem of the diamond water paradox, which you. We can talk about is that how is uh, you know uh, water, which is so much more useful than diamonds, priced lower? Uh, well, it must be due to you know cost of labor or something like that. In reality, it's it's the marginal uh, utility. We have so much water; it's much greater stock of water than there is of diamonds. So the scholastics continue to advance uh, the subjective value tradition 
They had also looked at money. So they were influential and just even working out just like a, a simple quantity theory of money, which is that if you increase the money supply, prices will rise, uh, which is something that is uh, still might be seen as a little controversial in, in modern politics, or at least when people are trying to describe what's the reason for the rise in prices uh, in, in 2021. But you know, again, the scholastics, uh, they had discussed monetary analysis showing how increased money supply leads to higher uh, prices. Uh, they had, as, as Huerta de Soto has also elaborated on, in addition to Rothbard, uh, written a lot about banking, particularly fractional reserve banking. Uh, they'd spoken about the benefits of private property rights and uh, anti-absolutism or anti-sort of the power of kings. So they, they had a lot of uh, foundational insights regarding subjective value regarding the importance of, of, of the free market and voluntary exchange and just basic monetary economics. So what should we know about Juan de Mariana? He's at, you know, we had some Dominicans in our conversation so far, but now we've got a Jesuit and he is among, as you just mentioned, someone who's talking about inflationism, for example, and he's got interesting things to say about rulers. Rulers should fear us. And the idea that tyrannicide is a is an extant possibility in any society is a salutary thing. Right. So we think about the perspective of uh, Juan de Marina that, so this is the age of absolutism, right? So the king is just the, the ruler. You have to listen to what the king says is related to the divine right of kings. You know, the king has a mandate from God. The king is, is, is literally a representative of God. You must fight for the king. You must pay your taxes to the king. You must die for the king, et cetera. So someone challenging this is, is very provocative, uh, saying that, you know, you have the right to resist the king or the right to uh, rebel the king. Sort of a, this is a forerunner to John Locke's sort of social contract theory, et cetera. He was also very, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I think the work was the, the alteration of money, something like that in the early 1600s. Uh, he was very anti-government debasement. So he really hit on this point. Uh, this theme that Austrians would later pick up that inflation is a tax, so it redistributes money from the late, you know, from the late receivers to the early receivers, aka the government. In that, actually criticized you know, using price controls to stop uh, inflation, right? So saying no, the problem is increasing the money supply, which is done so to finance various government uh, deficits, right? So monetizing the debt. So <laughs> he was very anti-government intervention, and this, of course earned him the ire of the uh, of the Spanish monarch, uh, Philip III, because clearly he doesn't want this guy uh, writing all this stuff, saying government policies uh, are, are not working. So a lot of, again, very foundational stuff just regarding uh, the efficiency of a market versus government intervention. Uh, so it's very important uh, information. Well, I think he also gets thrown in jail for it, for the act of less majesté, right, that, for criticizing the Spanish king. Yeah, he was. Uh, they, they, I, be, I believe they asked him to to shut up, and he. I think he eventually got the uh, he he got the message. And this is something that it's it's very important that Rothbard mentions uh, not only regarding the scholastics, but even later thinkers is that uh, the writing controversial ideas or even free market ideas it, it was not just as bad as you, know, you would get blocked on on Twitter or <laughs> you wouldn't get a job. Uh, you might lose your head, so to speak, when you are criticizing the government, challenging uh, the king's 
the, the king's law, the king's intervention, et cetera, you, you could be put on the chopping block. And as you mentioned, a lot of his thought was influenced by absolutism. We're, we're in this period where we're getting into the 15 and then the 16th through 18th century where Spain, France, England all have absolute monarchs. Uh, you have the lesson of King Henry VIII and then, of course, Louis XIV would maybe re represent the high point of this period. So in a sense, Juan de Mariana is presaging the mercantilism of the next couple of centuries. And what I really like was Rothbard's explication of this. I mean, I think of mercantilism as a cousin to fascism, everything within the state. But the idea that absolute rulers need a bureaucracy to enable them to impose this rule, I thought was, was not a way I had ever thought of mercantilism before. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a great point because Rothbard not only is concentrating on the kings, the, the, the rulers, the, the absolutist rulers, et cetera, but also the, the bureaucrats, the, the politicians and the, the intellectuals who are, who are justifying. So if you have absolutism, you also need to have mercantilism. And this sort of mercantilism is something that is not always described in as clear of a fashion as Rothbard mentions. Or Rothbard just describes it as it's just special interest privileges uh, to favored business elites, to strengthen the nation at the expense of other nation states. Right. That's what mercantilism is. Some other people say, well, it's 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 more complex or balance of trade. They they downplay the privileges, probably because they recognize that a lot of current interventionist economic thought is based off of mercantilism. I don't think it's a coincidence that Keynes heavily criticized classical economists, but uh, he did always have some positive things to say about some, some earlier economic cranks uh, and mercantilist thinkers. So the, the, the Rothbard's discussion of, of mercantilism is, is very interesting. Do you think that it's largely still with us do you think that's the system under which we operate today? We think of the managerial state or the deep state, or do you think the 20th century really represents a, at least a, a pretty significant victory for relatively free global trade? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think ultimately we still live under the same system, though the one difference is that we, we have more countries participating in the worldwide division of labor. Even in the 1700s and the 1800s, sort of the, we want to think of the, the, the high point of laissez-faire in Great Britain and the United States, I mean, most other countries uh, in the world had not really embarked upon uh, entering uh, worldwide trade or the industrial, their own industrial revolutions, et cetera. But so now we, we see more countries to be much more interventionist than we used to be in the 1800s. But that's kind of anticipating with each other. Though very recently, we have seen a move away from uh, globalization and free trade, uh, et cetera, even just paying lip service to those ideas uh, with COVID and the lockdowns as we move back almost into economic blocks. China wants to do its own thing in Asia. The EU wants to do its own thing in Europe. Mm. We want to do our own thing in North America, et cetera. And that's definitely problematic, not just for living standards, but also just for personal freedom and the development of economic thought. Well, it's interesting, Patrick, when you read liberalism or nation state and economy from Mises, he's writing those in the interwar years, or early part of the 20th century, he's looking back at the 
18 and 1700s. And when he says laissez-faire, he's talking about a domestic policy. We need laissez-faire at home and then free trade abroad to prevent autarky, for example. So I think when you and I, who had the benefit of of living in the 20th and 21st century, when we think of laissez-faire, we think of that as more a holistic policy. But it was a domestic policy in, in Mises's thinking. Uh, yeah, so Mises does speak about it in terms of domestic uh, domestic terms. Uh, even in many many American economists, it's sort of been broadened more and more to include international relations, kind of linked in with non-interventionism, or what's sort of uh, deriding, you know, deridingly referred to as uh, isolationism, etc. And of course, when we're on the topic of laissez-faire, we got to talk about the the famous French laissez-faire thinkers. Uh, it's, it's actually, it's, it's an interesting sort of anecdote. Rothbard mentions how the, the term laissez-faire came to be when the famous mercantilist Jean-Baptiste Colbert uh, sort of asked uh, the, the French businessman what the French government should do to stimulate the economy. Uh, Thomas Legendre, I think, basically said uh, laissez-non-faire, which is leave it to us, right? And it's this, uh, this, this idea of laissez-faire is no economist can ever say they're in favor of laissez-faire, because if you say you're in favor of laissez-faire, then you say you're in favor of decreased government involvement in the economy. And if you're in favor of decreased government involvement in the economy, well, then you're going to be out of a job as an economist. <laughs> well, so let's get into that. Let's get into to some of the French thinkers. And uh, well, why don't we start with Cantillon, who's obviously of French heritage. He's got a French uh, name, but he, because of dispossession, his family ends up living in Ireland. And most people think of Adam Smith as the founder of what we would call modern economics. Rothbard disagrees. He says it's Richard Cantillon. Uh, Mark Thornton's written quite a bit about him. We know the, the Cantillon effect with respect to the non-neutrality of money. I mean, he's a big, a big figure, a big thinker, also a fascinating guy, a guy who became very wealthy in his life, who was apparently murdered. I mean, there's a lot going on here, and Rothbard really likes him. Right. So when we get to Cantillon, he's the the first thinker, F.A. Hayek, argued that his book, An Essay on the Nature of Trade in General, which was written in the 1730s, but it was only published after Cantillon's death in 1755. Uh, Hayek believed it constituted the first economics treatise, and it also moved beyond just what the scholastics and the, uh, the mercantilists uh, wrote about because he abstracted from things like public policy and ethics. This is really, okay, let's let me analyze economic theory. And in many ways, it is the first treatise because even though it's relatively short, it does cover a lot of these important topics uh, from the bottom up, sort of building uh, each step of the way, getting a little more complicated, adding additional layer to the edifice. So you know, Cantillon was uh, very influential, especially for the Austrians, as he uh, once again focused on the, the scholastic tradition of looking at uh, exchange from the perspective of utility determining price. This led him to focus on real world pricing, though focusing on the pricing of goods determined in the short run after production has already occurred. Cantillon is analyzing the entrepreneur. So the entrepreneur as an uncertainty bearer in their uh, job in forecasting consumer demands and allocating resources. Uh, this is very big for the later Austrian theories. Uh, Cantillon uh, was, was big, as you mentioned, with, uh, with regard to monetary analysis. So this Cantillon effect, in many ways, his 
is, is the superior tool. Later uh, economists' views on the monetary transmission mechanism. So Cantillon showing that every change in spending impacts relative prices uh, at different times and in unequal fashion. Uh, this is something that's it's, it's really, really important. And it's all the more incredible that he wrote it as sort of a side uh, a side job. And it wasn't even published uh, after he wrote his book. Uh, the essay it wasn't even published after he died. <laughs> Well, his side job, because he's busy getting rich yeah. off this unholy land deal, which Rothbard describes, the Mississippi Company, where he basically shorted what he thought was a bubble and became very wealthy as a result. And he's doing all this in France, by the way. He leaves Ireland for Paris. Um, so why is it the treatise? Is that what makes him the founding father of modern economics? Or, or was it something more than that? What is, was it his overall contribution, his holistic contribution? Because that, that's, that's pretty high praise. Right. I, 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 it's, 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 of course, I would say both because I guess it, what, what good is a treatise if it's incorrect? And at the, on the other hand, if you're making a lot of foundational contributions, then you probably have to write uh, at least a sort of a systematic work on economics. This is admittedly different than Turgot, who did not write uh, a treatise or really a systematic work. It was mainly sort of fragments of different essays. But I, I would say it's, it's, Cantillon's, uh, it's Cantillon's thought. He's continuing the scholastic tradition. So Cantillon, uh, you know, again, the subjective uh, theory of value, real world pricing, entrepreneurship, uh, the harmful effects of government intervention. Cantillon wasn't perfect in that. He slipped into some mercantilist fallacies, but then again, no one is. Uh, his analysis of money, again, building off of the scholastic recognition that changes in the money supply change prices and production and so on. Uh, and so I, I, would, I would put him in that position that when you think about the first thinker, you really want to spend a lot of time analyzing. They make a lot of contributions themselves. Uh, I would say Cantillon you know, would be the first one. The scholastics, there's a lot of scholastics. Cantillon, there's only there's only one Cantillon. So who should claim him? Is he a French economist? Is he an Irish economist? Well, <laughs> uh, as someone who's part Irish, I would say the Irish should claim him. I mean, my name is Patrick, uh, but I'm sure that's probably not the most objective opinion. Uh, I would I would definitely say. He's more French than uh, someone who's from the British Isles in that his economic thought was influenced by the continental economists. Uh, so earlier French laissez-faire thinkers, Italian scholastics, Spanish scholastics, et cetera. I would put him in the continental tradition rather than uh, the tradition of the British Isles or the English tradition. Okay. So that moves us into the French physiocrats. And also Turgot, who Rothbard takes pains to say, no, 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 was misidentified perhaps as a physiocrat. So what's happening in France in the 1800s? There's so much, you know, not only in France, but in the U.S. You have, you know, Adam Smith is coming up soon as well. So uh, what, what's, what's a physiocrat? What's, what's with this obsession with agricultural production? And why is this noteworthy for us? Sure. So in the 1700s, just some going through some basic uh, political and historical information. So certain countries are taking off relative to other countries. So Spain is, has been eclipsed. Spain was so 1500s, I guess. And it's, it's basically focusing on Great Britain and France, and then later the American colonies and what became the United States. Great Britain is really taking the lead 
in terms of its governmental system after the Glorious Revolution is at least a constitutional monarchy. Not perfect, but that is very important uh, in contrast to France, which stuck with its absolutist monarchy. Uh, Great Britain was winning the colonial battles, so it became the world superpower after the French and Indian War of the 1750s and early 1760s. So you, you've, you've got a lot of people in France, they're recognizing that, hey, wait a second, Great Britain, its colonies are growing so much because of salutary neglect. Uh, its government seems to be working more efficiently because it's more limited. Hey, this, this laissez-faire, this free market uh, ideas, these concepts, they, they, they work, we should practice them. The issue, though, of course, is that you have an absolutist monarchy and the king of France isn't exactly going to uh, be okay with that. So the, this, this leads to the physiocrats who are really trying to push for uh, laissez-faire. Their strategy was, well, you just convert the king. If you teach the king a bunch of free market economics, then the king will embrace it. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't realize that uh, aside from incentive issues, uh, you're putting all of your, your eggs in one basket. So what happens if the king or the king's heir uh, you know, corks off, if he dies, then you know, you did all that hard work for, for nothing. So there, that, that's the flaw in the physiocrat strategy. But the physiocrat's actual sort of economics uh, was very based off of that land or agricultural is the source of uh, wealth. So this led them to really focus on the land, which became a flaw in their reasoning. Uh, they, they were very uh, anti-tax or trying to lower taxes, but they also advocated that, well, uh, in sort of a a predecessor of Henry George in the uh, mid to late 1800s that we can just replace it with a single tax on land. This is all based around the idea that, well, you've got the landlord, the owner of the land, and he just sits there. So he's just collecting unnecessary income, rent. Right? This is what uh, was later the classical economists referred to as rent. They didn't realize that the landlord actually performed a very important function. There was a lot of work and entrepreneurial insight that came into forecasting the relative values of land and deciding what you should build on a certain place, uh, if you should not build something for now to save it for something in the future, et cetera. Uh, but this is, uh, that, that was sort of their, their, their overall perspective on land and, and, and unfortunately hindered more than it helped them. But shouldn't we cut them a little slack here? You call it a blind spot, viewing land as the basis for you know, all economic. I mean, we're in it. We haven't yet gotten to the industrial revolution. We're really at the height of agrarian Europe. And so we could understand why they thought that wealth should be or economics should be analyzed around land. And, and also, I mean, aren't they really the the first true economic liberals, people who were uh, championing you know, that movement away from monarchs and mercantilism towards what we would today call economic liberalism? So in the, in, the, in the modern sense, yeah, I mean, building off of the scholastics, the, the, the physiocrats, they were some of these first big thinkers in terms of laissez-faire. So yeah, that should be, uh, they, they, should, they should be praised for that. In the land, I guess I didn't mean to necessarily criticize them on their, their focus of land per se, in that, yeah, it was the pre-industrial revolution. Most uh, work was done. People worked on farms. They didn't work in factories. Uh, at least the, the 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 large majority of them, really some of their perceptions and what later influenced or uh, what the later the classical economists argued regarding land, because uh, many of them were starting to write 
around this time period and even in the early 1800s when most of the world was still agricultural, that landlords and land was just sort of seen as an unnecessary uh, component. It was just an unnecessary income rent in that the landlords uh, just sat just sat there and that, well, we can just basically put all the taxes on land. Well, but I'm interested by their attempt at understanding or explaining how countries get rich. I mean, you point out that Spain was receding in power and wealth and influence at this point. Uh, England and France were rising. And when we look at that, I think even today, we have the benefit of 300 years since then, let's say. We, I don't think we still really get it. I don't think we still understand. You have books, you know, you have Deidre McCloskey writing. Uh, you have books like, if you recall, I'm sure some of our listeners know, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which was from the 90s by uh, Jared Diamond. You know, we still have all these theories for the rise and fall of countries or nations. And But, uh, you know, I think Rothbard and the physiocrats here are giving us an understanding which is unappreciated or underappreciated uh, that, that we still don't fully understand. And we ought to understand as technology progresses, our understanding should progress. We still don't fully get why some countries are rich and some countries are poor. And that seems to me a hell of an important thing to understand. Yeah, and it, that, that is true. The reasons for economic growth, I mean, most economists would, at least the good ones, would uh, argue that institutions are the reason for economic growth, and really the free market. So not having the government do anything, this is I know it's not the focus of our talk. This is the main focus of Adam Smith, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Smith, in some lectures uh, earlier on, said it's peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice, which is, which is pretty right. Yeah, that's it's more yeah. or less just don't get in wars, uh, have a good legal system, and don't overly regulate or tax businesses. And this is something that it makes so much economic sense. But economists today, as well as other thinkers, of course, they don't want to argue for that perspective because, again, the free market is not the most lucrative uh, area for employment uh, in power for economists. So the, the real reasons for economic development have to be uh, something else or, oh, it was a, the reason the Industrial Revolution started in Great Britain was, a, was a, the Black Death or was it a change in the, the ratio between uh, capital and labor or it was some government assistance somewhere else, et cetera. Again, it all circles back to the eternal struggle, really, between people who advocate the free market versus people who uh, justify increased government intervention. So when we're talking about these French thinkers of the 18th century, what what's important about Turgot? Why does he stand out? Why does Rothbard praise him? Well, so Turgot was a very important French thinker. He was a he was one of those laissez-faire reformers. I believe he was minister of finance in France in the mid-1770s. So he was trying to engage in some reforms. Didn't really work. Uh, he didn't write that much in economics. But what he wrote was very good. And this is something that's, that's important. We, we wish he wrote more. Uh, he, again, was, spoke very good on laissez-faire, free trade, so not having a government subsidize another industry or uh, the, to try and lower tariffs, particularly tariffs on uh, bread and, and foreign grains. Uh, so Turgot, uh, you know, once again, emphasized the importance of market exchange and so on. He also continued to emphasize the importance of subjective utility and value, uh, sort of touched on opportunity costs. He anticipated the opportunity cost uh, doctrine, though it wasn't perfect. 
I think his, his, his major advancements that separate him from guys like Cantillon and other thinkers was really when it came in uh, what, what he wrote about regarding time preference in the capital structure. So really a major developer of the Austrian structure of production approach. He emphasized the importance of time. If Cantillon emphasized the entrepreneur, then Turgot uh, emphasized the capitalist or really what Bomberwerk later called the capitalist entrepreneur. So recognizing that uh, interest is related to time preference, that savings influence the interest rate, that savings develop the structure of production. Turgot really touched on all of these concepts that play such an important role in the Austrian edifice. And of course, subjectivism and marginalism helps us understand value. It helps us understand price formation. But was Turgot ahead of his time in helping us understand price formation without this equilibrium BS? Uh, he he does have the the, the basic sort of uh, utility uh, analysis and sort of real world pricing. So uh, I believe it was in in value and money. That was one of his essays. Uh, I, I've got the Mises Institute books. This would be a good plug to know the Mises Institute published a collection of Turgot uh, writings as well as Cantillon's essay. Uh, Turgot analyzed bilateral exchange. He showed the mutual benefit, uh, how people benefit from an exchange and all of that. Uh, Turgot you know, also really touched on the what was known as the law of diminishing returns so that all else equal, there's an optimal amount of the varying factor. You know, if you keep a plant in a in a, in a, in a certain amount of soil in a, in, a, in a pot, then if you add don't add enough water, it's not going to grow. If you add too much water, it's not it's it's going to drown. It won't grow. So there's 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 an optimal. This was something that really uh, wasn't rediscovered for many more years. So Turgot's got a lot of great insights. Well, this has been fascinating for me to go through this book and especially to avail myself of uh, economic historians like yourself. I want to encourage people to check it out. We'll link to a free PDF of the book uh, next week. We're going to have a couple special guests, not Patrick. I'm going to let him off the hook, uh, let him get back to his day job. But we're going to have a, we're going to really spend an entire show on this period of the Scottish Enlightenment and especially Adam Smith and Hume uh, and, and the wealth of nations, and we'll probably talk about Mill and Bentham as well in that conversation. So we're gonna—it's a really meaty part of Rothbard's analysis, and we're gonna give it some good time uh, next week. But in the meantime, as I mentioned, Patrick, a fellow here at the Mises Institute, is an economic historian in his own right. His new book is out; it's available in hardcover. It's called Cronyism. You can find it at Mises.org. You can also find it at our upcoming event in Florida in October, our Supporter Summit event, where Patrick, we're going to roll it out. We're going to have a gala evening, sort of a book launch, and I'm sure Patrick's going to be signing so many of those. His hand is going to be sore. So check it out at Mises.org. Check out the show notes for a link to Rothbard's two-volume book, and be sure to join us next week for a thoroughgoing look at Adam Smith. So all that said, uh, Patrick, I want to thank you for your time, and ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm glad to be on the podcast again. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.